Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, tons of people take a multivitamin, and it's important to choose one that's top quality. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day right. It's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially during cold and flu season. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a, a million different pills and, and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. That's a difficult sentence to read. I'm not going to lie. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash sports drink. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash sports drink to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I'm a dire Pelicans fan because that bitch got New Orleans in front of me. Welcome to another edition of The Bird Calls. I am your host, David Grubb, and alongside our our typical panel of contributors, David Fisher and editor-in-chief of the Bird Call of the Bird Rights, excuse me.com, Mr. Ali Cosell. Kevin Berrios is not with us today, and neither is Preston. Um, it's too late for Preston, and Kevin is working. Shenanigans. So. Shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> um so this is our reaction, essentially, to what's happened since Game 2. Not just Game 2, but things that have happened after. So certainly the Pelicans come into tomorrow's Game 3 with the series tied at one game apiece. Um, something they had never done in the history of the franchise. They had never won a Game 2 after losing Game 1. They had never done that on the road. And they had... Um, They'd been 0-5 uh, in those situations in either the first or the second round in, uh, in, the, in the Pelicans franchise. So, guys, um, they come back. They're great in game threes at home and 5-2 and all-time at game threes at the Smoothie King Center. Um, they've got a wounded a, uh, Phoenix Suns team that, with that, that will be playing without Devin Booker uh, in game for the rest of this series, at least, it looks like. And mm-hmm. – um, they're at home in front of what should be an incredibly raucous crowd that might even be louder than it was uh, in 2018 when the Pelicans swept Portland. So, Fish, I'm going to let you go first because I know you've probably got a lot to, to let off your chest. But how do you feel about the New Orleans Pelicans and the position that they're in heading into Friday night's Game 3? Man... The future is not promised. You got to take it right now. That's the biggest thing. Um, you mentioned um, the crowd. Um, I think the crowd's going to be incredible. 
like just bonkers incredible on Friday night. Um, not just because of the position the team's in and things like that, man. This team has connected with the city in a way that none of those other previous teams has. Um, not a Pelicans team. Not, not a Pelicans team. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no Pelicans team has ever connected with the city like this one has. Um, I, 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 honestly, I wasn't, I wasn't living in the city yet. I was still up in Chicago for the 2008 season. So you guys will have more to say about, you know, kind of the connection between the city and the franchise at that time. Um, but I was here for the 2011. Um, I was in the building actually for the 2011 playoff games. Um, had little kids at home. So um, for the 2018 games, but I remember what that was like. Um, and was deeply ingrained, I guess, in Pelican fandom and, and culture at that point. It's it's different. There, there's no other way to put it. The the connection, the just passion that this that this city, um, this whole south, southeastern Louisiana has um, with this team compared to to, to any of the previous um, iterations of it, and we're going to see that on on Friday night and it's going to be incredible. I can't wait. Ali, you and I were in the buildings for game 3 and game 4 in 2018. And um there was I don't remember anything like that in all the years and I've been watching the Pelicans in person since they were the Hornets since they moved here in 2002. Um I don't remember anything like that for two for two nights where it just you know and the pelicans routed uh portland in game three uh won comfortably in game four to close the series scored a bunch of points in both games you know it it just it was an unforgettable weekend um for those games uh do you think that this can surpass that i don't know that that is a high bar because i remember I was sitting over there well, with you and Andrew, and I forget who else was with us, but I would just turn to you guys, and I saw your lips moving, but I couldn't hear you. And that was pretty much true for the entire game, right, since when we first got there, uh, well before tip-off to afterwards. I mean, and it was just electric throughout. And I'll tell you what, there were some people arguing with me that the Spurs playing game was as loud. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this, David, because I totally disagreed with them because they thought it was. I'm like, it wasn't even No way. I'm sorry. No way. You weren't there, I know, D, but it wasn't. Just trust me. It wasn't like that. So, No, you can that's a high feel bar. it. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if we'll hit that bar from four years ago, but I'll tell you what, just coming close to it or being at it, that's more than enough because that, by far and away, is going to prove, I don't know insurmountable, I want to say, honestly, for the Suns, because unless they're on point and Chris Paul's dictating and he's having a good game himself, because I don't think the Suns can win here if both of those things don't happen. And you know that crowd's going to rattle probably somebody on that Suns roster. I felt like last year they, I don't want to say they had an easy route, but they didn't get as tested and let alone have to do it without, of course, Devin Booker, who looked like an MVP this year. So who's going to step up for them is my question. There's so many questions. I know we're going to get to it, but I'm just going to say stick with the crowd noise uh, question. And, yeah, absolutely, I think it's going to be just as loud as 2018 because everybody has fallen in love with this team and all these individuals. That's the biggest key, right? They were losers, right? They were 
second worst team in the Western Conference, and people were falling in love with Herb Jones back then. This city has always loved Brandon Ingram. They've always liked how he's just been no nonsense, going about his business, never complaining to referees. So he's been a fan favorite from you know day one for me. I, I feel like. And then you just go up and down the roster, right? Jonas Valanciunas, he's that blue-collar guy. He's going to fight, and he's been fighting, right? These two games, he, he's shooting under 40%, but guess what? It doesn't show in his effort because all, he's getting every rebound that he can grab. And, and then you just go down the line, right? Then in the middle of the season, people fell in love with Jose Alvarado. Now, last month or so, it's Trigga, right? Trey Murphy. So there's just so many cast of characters that I feel like this New Orleans – town has fallen in love with on top of what they're doing so yeah tomorrow it's going to be crazy loud no doubt about it yeah i think this is this it's a much different position than 2008 because in 2008 you were division champions that was a team that people legitimately thought could win the west um that year uh and it was just so frustrating to lose in the, in the semifinals to the to the spurs um it just felt like that team was was so the relationship with that team is different, um, but the vibe is the same because that team <clears throat> had been through things and was built in New Orleans. The guys who were the core of that team were built in New Orleans between Chris and David West, um, and of course, then you added guys externally like Tyson Chandler. You added uh, externally into Pedro Stojakovic. You added you know, these other guys, but the core of the, the group were New Orleans guys. And, and, and they had been with the franchise together um, and grown up. And I think that's kind of now is we don't even really think of Brandon Ingram's Lakers career. You know what I mean? It's like his career didn't start. Except for Magic he, Johnson. Yeah. Who, who blesses, like Ex-Laker. I said, Laker. Ex-Laker Magic Brandon tweets. Ingram. Get out of here. Magic, Magic tweets are just hilarious. Magic <laughs> tweets like a grandfather. Which he is, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's this team, and I, I and I, I think it's we could we can discuss this. I think this is also a good jumping off point because you see now suddenly a, a resurgence of well, this is exactly what David Griffin wanted. Look, it's it came to fruition. And the only thing I would say about that, and this isn't to be a down or anything, it's just to say a lot of this. You know, this is this is the accidental parts of sports. How he got to this road is not on the path that he was taking. You know, this, that he didn't walk down the road that he was forging. He went, took some left turns and right turns, and eventually they found themselves back to where they were supposed to go. Um, and I think some of it's some you, you, you lucked out with maybe the greatest draft class value wise, uh, at least in the last twenty years for a complete class. Value wise, I, I mean, what team had three three rookies, two second rounders in that mix, and they're the types of contributors that the Pelicans have. So I mean, it's 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 just it's been this. I think we have to give Willie Green so much more credit, but he refuses to take it. And over the last couple of days, when you listen to Willie and him talk about after game two and say this isn't about me, it's about the people who put this team together, it's about the people on the court, it's about my assistants. And then today when he's talking about the team and people talk about how do you, how are you getting these young guys? Well, you got to talk to the player development developmental staff. It's Spoon and it's Corey and it's and, and he's just it's never Willie talking about Willie. But at the center of this, even through his mistakes, even through the things that we've been frustrated by through him, 
It's his demeanor. It's his tone. It's his creation. It's his vision that I think that is being played out on the court. It is not as much a Griff thing. And he has to get some credit, certainly. But this feels like, man, you got Willie Green and for Willie Green has just filled every crevice that was cracking up the foundation of this this organization. And he's done so much to make that culture. It's Willie Green's culture. That's what it feels like to me. And he's and they've gotten these other people like a teaspoon, like a Corey Brewer. These really Jared Collins. These people are who are really great at communicating and teaching. And they've built this into a finishing program now instead of having to root these kids up from day one and develop them. They are shining and polishing them, which is a much different position than the Pelicans were in for two years. Yeah, real quick, I want to just jump in and then say one thing in David Griffin's favor is not only did the front office draft these three rookies, but also we've learned, right, as of today, that C.J. McCollum's been a target of his before, right? They, he got him in a trade deadline. Same thing with Larry Nance. So I would give, I would tend to give him just maybe a little bit more credit than what maybe it just sounds like what's coming from me. But I totally agree with you. This season doesn't happen without Willie Green. It doesn't happen to, with him getting this team through that awful start to believe in themselves, to get them basically playing winning basketball. And we know when this season started, you couldn't say that about half the roster, right? I mean, outside of right. what, Josh Hart, Jonas Valanciunas, B.I. I mean, I guess Devontae Graham as well. But outside of really just a handful of those guys, the rest of the guys weren't performing to where, you know, Willie Green's going to the, his bench and feeling comfortable about it, right? So, yeah, without a doubt, David, the majority of the credit should go to Willie Green. I mean, I'm, I'm not dismissing. And his coaching staff. The, Let's not, yeah. not, not make, as you mentioned already, some names. Let's not just make it about Willie. It's that whole coaching staff for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, it's not to dismiss what Trajan and Swin and Griffin have done. I don't know who gets the credit for identifying the players in this draft, whomever was the scouting, who did the scouting on Jose Alvarado, whoever did the scouting on Herb Jones, whoever did the scouting on Trey Murphy, you know, then that person and persons should make sure that we they get the credit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, the this was – this was so unexpected because still, yeah, the ingredients were not there in the beginning and things that we saw fall into place. You know, I think, that, you know, when we all saw that CJ McCollum, once the Portland Trailblazers were imploded, we're like, all of our eyes turned to CJ McCollum. You know what I mean? Like it didn't, that didn't take visionary, um, you know, things. Uh, Fish has been on Nance for, since we were t- first talking about the Anthony Davis trade. When we were talking about when we were first proposing teams, Nance was in that discussion all the way back then. Yes. So I mean, like, so we've had a lot of these things that we've talked about, you know, the whole center situation and getting to Valanciunas over, over this point. Mm-hmm. It's really just you you you've been trying to evolve up from what was a good decision initially with Derek Favors as you get your start with a defensive-minded center, and then you started expanding upon that. And that was always the intent. I don't think any of us ever thought that favors would have been the long-term solution. You wanted something that progressively was going to give you more offensive as offense as a threat. So yeah, a lot of the things have just happened and they've done well and the front office deserves credit for that, but the players, yeah, to, to, for them to mature as they did to step into these roles and be fearless 
like Alvarado and hitting those shots in the fourth, like Trey and stepping up and hitting jumpers, like Herb defending the way he has and scoring points, putting up 12, you know, points. It's that those kind of efforts. And it, it, it even to get to squeeze all that he could out of Jackson Hayes in a night when he had to get it from him. They had to have those points from Jackson Hayes. They had to have him running the way he did. Because ultimately, yeah, that's that leads to Devin Booker's injury. Is Jackson Hayes running really hard because Willie Green is begging his team the entire first half, go fast, go fast, go fast. He's Ricky Bobbying them the entire time. And Monty Williams <laughs> is talking about it. All he all mm-hmm. you hear out of Willie is tell he's telling his guys go fast. We have to run back fast. And one team did and the other didn't. And I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the the Booker injury and stuff like that, and some of the discourse that's surrounded by by that. The Pelicans took the Suns' best punch. Like it's not like the Suns have played poorly over the last you know eight quarters. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the first the first half of Game Two, I mean, Booker literally could not miss. Like, yeah, he got some open looks and you're like, oh, that's a breakdown. But if you if you watch, I mean, Phoenix runs complicated stuff. They run stuff where you have to make a choice of, you know, what you're going to allow. Because um, there are there are if then options off of all of it. They're not running a set where it's we're trying to get this guy this shot. It's we're going to run this set and. If you try to play him high and take it away, then we're going to curl the screen or we're going to flip the screen around. Um, and if, you know, you take two to the ball, then this guy's going to slip and we're going to play, you know, four on three or three on two the other way. Um, both of the times that Trey Murphy got back cut, it wasn't because he was not paying attention. It's because he was overplaying. Because the Pelicans were like, hey, we're not going to give up threes. He's trying to overplay and make sure that Miles Bridges, you know, doesn't get up on the high side. And Phoenix is really smart, like just generally across the entire organization. And he sees that and he immediately back cuts it. And, you know, his teammate with the ball sees that he's back cutting and gets the pass out on time and on target. Um, it's it's one right, thing- Let's not overanalyze the play. But yeah, but get back to your point. Get back to your point. Um, but the thing is, is that the Phoenix is playing well. Um, they are not throwing up stinkers, and the Pelicans keep on taking their best punch, and they're not going to roll over. Um, it took you know Chris Paul having one of the best. No, we're not going to do that. I don't yeah, like but, when we do that. We talk about Chris Paul having to, the Pelicans helped Chris Paul get off like that. Yeah, but, but, but didn't but, take the, great. But players. he still made the shots. No, I, I get both your guys' points, but he still. But made I mean, the we shots do this and so we say, "Well, it took this," but it's part of the game. The yeah. game is played that way. It took it took Brandon Ingram having a great fourth quarter for the Pelicans to win game two. That's what mm-hmm. exceptional players are supposed to do. And the, so the, I don't I don't want to do that one player thing where we start saying. Because it cha- it, it, we're, we're going to play it in our favor, but we're not going to play it in our it, it, when it works against us. You see what I'm saying? I, it's no, an argument I, that, that starts I, working I, only in your favor. No, I, and I understand that. Um, um, what, one thing I think 
it, it, it's easier to do since we're playing Phoenix and there isn't really any kind of animosity against their fan base or the players on their roster, et cetera, um, is, I mean, we can give credit to Phoenix. Like Booker was incredible. Chris Paul in the first game was incredible. Uh, DeAndre Ayton has been incredible through, throughout the series. Um, I mean, he's, he's automatic from 15 feet and in, and that really breaks down what the Pelicans want to do defensively um and so the the biggest thing for me especially stylistically and stuff like that watching the game is man there's just great basketball happening out there on the floor there's tremendous shot creation the pelicans are probably leaning a little too much on the shot creation side in terms of just having bi and cj cook um but Phoenix is just running beautiful stuff like they do all season long. And it's, it's, it's great basketball to watch. It's great basketball to analyze. And now you got to get me to shut up. <laughs> well, I, Ollie, I would say the, the, the reason that I, I think that the Pelicans are going to be a lot less structured is because they can't afford to be. I mean, like, like, honestly, like their, their best play in the first two games came when they were frenetic. And because they were energetic and because they were able to get in transition yeah. and make things happen because they're just not going to out execute Phoenix in the half court. It, it won't happen over the course of a game. And I think that's why Willie is really pushing them to attack early in the shot clock because he knows the lo- the deeper you get into the shot clock against Phoenix, the more trouble you're in. Absolutely. My first thought in that third quarter was when the tide was really turning in the Pelicans' favor, it wasn't just watching Jackson. It was the whole team, the way they were pushing the issue, and it did. It felt frenetic out there. It felt like the Pelicans pushed also Phoenix into an uncomfortable zone where they weren't getting their most optimal shots, right, within the offense. I mean, you can't say they were when Devin Booker, who puts up 31 points in the first half, gets one shot attempt in over seven minutes of play. Right. So you knew that the Pelicans disrupted them. And, and I almost tweeted out something about chaos. I'm like saying chaos is working in the Pelicans favor. And I hope it stays that way. And you're exactly right, David. I feel like that's the Pelicans best chance on winning this series. Honestly, they're going to have to outscore Phoenix. I feel like I don't think defensively. Well, previously before Devin Booker's injury, I felt like defensively, they couldn't have really done enough to slow them down. They were just going to have to end up outscoring them. Now, I guess maybe things change a little bit, right? Obviously, but still, you've got to think, the Pelicans all season, especially since acquiring C.J. McCollum, they're at their best when they're putting up about 125 points, something they can do easily because they've got C.J., B.I., and a lot of other key guys that can step up and either make shots, make a play, or just do something right that positively impacts the game. As for Phoenix, I feel like they've almost gotten maybe – I don't want to say they've fallen into their roles, but, man, without Booker suddenly, where are they going to find the offense? was on a couple of radio shows earlier today, and everybody's saying, oh, most logical bet is, of course, going through DeAndre Ayton. But guess what? Ever since Chris Paul showed up there, Ayton's been really pushed back into kind of, you know, a, not only just a third role, but he, he's not getting, what, more than 14 shots a game. So can he suddenly step up and shoot 21, 22 times a game and let it not affect his defense? I'm not sure, right? So Well, I've seen – I, I would say I've, I think they've done that in the past. They were They were – it was the first part of the series in the playoffs last year. They ran a lot through Aiton. They they were able to do that. Now, I think you're right. I mean, you don't just replace 25, 26 points a game. You don't. 
But I think that's the whole the Suns thing will now will be they want these games to be at a hundred. And you're right. I think the the Pelicans want to be at 120, and the Suns want to be at 100, and they want to make these games as ugly as possible. And that's going to be the thing for the Pelicans is they Pelicans are small, the Suns are bigger, stronger, and I think that like it, it becomes like a boxing match where the heavier fighter wants to lean on you and they make you tired. And if you're the smaller fighter, you want to keep moving. You want to keep moving your feet. You want to circle the ring and you want that big fighter to use their legs. And I think that's, that's exactly the approach now for these teams is that if you're the Pelicans, you want to jab, jab, jab and get out of the way. And if you're the Suns, you're just trying to plow and get the Pelicans stuck in the corner so that you can just beat them in the body. I think that's 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 the context for the next two two three games. The one thing I think um, that, I mean, it doesn't really go with the analogy you were going with, but um, how, how the how the Pelicans kept themselves in in game one is uh, if it gets ugly and slow and it's a very half court game, and the Pelicans are missing shots, the thing that they're going to lean on is we're going to get a bunch of offensive rebounds. We're one of the best offensive rebounding teams in the entire league all season. They had 25 offensive rebounds in game one. We're playing two bigs a lot of the time. And then when they go to their one big lineup, which is usually going to be Nance, he's been, you know, a freaking menace on the offensive glass, not just in getting the rebounds, but himself, but getting tap outs and things like that. And if the Pelicans can continue to get offensive rebounds at the rate they've been getting them so far in this series, it gives them the bandwidth essentially to not have a great shooting night and they can still, you know, have a puncher's chance down, down the stretch because they're just going to keep on getting extra possessions. They're just going to keep on getting offensive rebounds and they're going to, I mean, we'll we'll shoot 38% for some game but we're we're going to have so many offensive rebounds and so many additional possessions um that you know we can we can still keep up with you so if if phoenix does manage to keep the pelicans out of transition some um i i i feel like the pelicans they're still struggling in the half court in terms of running sets and creating good shots um, but the counter that the Pelicans have to that is one, if Phoenix really wants to grind it down to a half court game, Phoenix isn't, isn't running team at all. And that only opens the Pelicans up further to being more aggressive attacking on the offensive glass. Um, and we'll muck it up that way. I think, you know, uh, I think, uh, Monty Williams talked a lot about the first three steps getting back defensively and how he wants to cut that transition. So I'd imagine that they're going to completely um, concede mm. the defensive glass uh, from Monty. And he's going to have his guys, especially he's not going to, because what happened a lot was Chris Paul ended up being the first guy back. Yes. And Jackson would be mm-hmm. running or, and that and that's what ended up with Devin Booker is either Chris Paul or Devin Booker would end up being the first two guys running back. And that's not going to work for the, for, for the Suns. I think, and Monty's not stupid. You know what I mean? He's going to look at that. And he's going to say, it's got to be Crawford has to be back there. It's got to be, you know, the, uh, these other guys. Um, Cam Johnson has to be back there. It has to be Aiton back there. Somebody else 
it cannot be our backcourt being the first two guys getting back in transition because the Pelicans are, you know, whether it's Herb Jones, whether it's Trey Murphy, whether it's Jackson Hayes, all of those, Brandon Ingram, Jonas Valanciunas, all those guys around the rim, you'd expect them to be able to finish. So, yeah, they don't want that in transition. So I think it's that's the pace question is going to be the the thing that you, that I do look for early. And then I think for the Pelicans offensively, it becomes a lot of do you keep getting those paint touches? Because when they've gotten their paint touches, they've been they've been doing well. They, they the ball has, has moved well. Um, and, and, and it's just, you know, you've seen your moments with CJ forcing it. And I think every game is its own game. Every game is its own game within the series. I don't I don't like carryover because I think teams, you know, that's why you adjust. That's what coaches do in, in seven game series. Um, and I think CJ will shoot better at home. I think the Pelicans as a whole will shoot better at home. But the Suns are still the Suns. They were five and two without Devin Booker this season. Um, and, you know, I actually grabbed, they went eight and six. They went eight, eight and six. I looked it up. It was that last stretch, excuse me, the five and two stretch when he, uh, um, when he got hurt, uh, when he lost at a hamstring, the left hamstring. He missed seven games and they went five and two over those eight and six over the whole season. You're right. You're right. Okay. Um, but you know, again, and this is the team with the best road record in the NBA. So I'm not going to underestimate them in any way, in any way. And I don't think we are here. I don't think that's what we're saying. Um, and, and I think fish, when you and I talked about it the first time, we said, I, you give the Pelicans a puncher's chance because when you compete on every possession, yep. you got a shot. They compete on every possession, defend, rebound. Like defense and defending and rebounding will show up every single game, regardless of what happens. The Pelicans have 35 offensive rebounds. The Suns have 12 through the first two games. That's that's 23 more t- times you get to see if you can put another shot up, man. 23 more shots than the opponent is a lot. <laughs> so, I mean. Don't don't discount that. Um, I know you know Jonas hasn't necessarily had very aesthetically pleasing games. Um, he hasn't shot the ball terribly well. Um, he took, I mean, last game he took a couple shots um, that he made during the regular season where they pass it to him and he faces up from like 15, 18 feet, like an extended post situation, and then he just puts the shot up like. Nothing else happens. Just one pass shot. And that's the thing I think, Grub, that drives me and you crazy is when Mm -hmm. the Pelicans run those one pass or they get, you know, a cross match or something like that in in like a mini transition. And then we have either CJ or Brandon Ingram doing a whole bunch of dribbling and then shooting. And that's the one thing that I think I hope that the Pelicans um, coaching staff is looking at. And they're just telling, telling the rest of the team, man, we need to run our stuff, um, not just to continue to stretch stress um, Phoenix defensively, but the Pelicans need to run their stuff so that they're not running Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum into the ground trying to do all of the creation themselves. Run your stuff. Trust mm-hmm. your offense. Trust trust everybody else out there on the floor because you know everybody else out there on the floor. I mean, nobody out there is scared except for Devontae Graham. So, I mean, let's go. I mean, 
let Jose Alvarado run some pick and roll stuff. Let him be aggressive, you know, taking it to the basket and things like that. Don't be afraid of, you know, we're going to get into the motion and who's going to shoot the ball. And then it ends up kicking out to Herb or Trey and they either need to shoot a three or attack a closeout. Trust, trust your guys. And that was one of the things Willie said between the first and the second game is that their biggest thing was trust your guys. I think what the Pelicans need to do at this point is trust what got you here. Um, and that's defense effort and running their stuff. Um, th- there, there'll be plenty of time for isolation and dribbling, you know, in the fourth quarter um, when we really get to crunch time up until then, the more they can run their stuff, um, the more, the more gas you, you should expect that there's going to be in the tank for Brandon Ingram and CJ to, to do what you're going to ask them to do. Uh, we have to address Brandon Ingram and, and what was one of the great, playoff performances in New Orleans basketball. Um, mm-hmm. You know, getting a near triple-double um, and doing it the way he did it. And there was a concern on my part, you know, because Brandon opened the game with a great first quarter, and then he scored zero in the second. And then he was having a very solid third. And before we got to the fourth, I'm just like, this is going to be one of those Brandon Ingram halves where he goes first and third, second, no fourth. And instead, he would he did the things that that we had been waiting for for him. At, you know, and he's done at different points of this year. He was efficient. He got to his spot still. And then once he had that rhythm, you know, the 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 baseline jumper that he hit late in the fourth. I mean, it was just a work of art. And it's just his confidence was so high during those last four to five minutes. It feels like I still don't know if Brandon is a one, but he is ascended to that part where you, you know, you can count on him uh, on a nightly basis. Yeah, there's no doubt. The way he shot those three pointers with so much confidence and look, he hasn't made or even looked to shoot the three for months. Right. I mean, the three ball kind of abandoned his game and I know he started working with Fred Vinson. I want to say maybe six weeks ago, something along those lines trying to get it back. It never did come back, right, guys? We didn't see it in the regular season. But when he's shooting that in a, such an important playoff game and he's, he's splashing it down, but he's still continuing to do everything else, getting to his mid-range, but he's also making the right play. I mean, there's been times where he's had a good scoring game going, but he's not making the right play out there on the court, right? Trying to drive and, and, and it's either resulting in a turnover or just not a good shot. He is so in sync right now. We've never seen him playing as well. So that bodes well. Right. You're in the playoffs. Great. That's a good thing. But yeah, David, I feel like there has been some kind of ascension with his game because everything is working for him. I even see him defensively, either talking to guys or getting in the right position so much more often than he ever has um, in previous years. I know he's kind of showed in the regular season, but it really wasn't a consistent thing. But then the last thing, the rebounding. He is averaging, what, eight, nine rebounds a game. I know it's only been two games, but the fact he's impacting the game in so many different ways, I think I think that has to speak on its own, right, on where he thinks he is and what he's trying to do out there. He's not just trying to score. He's trying to help his team win any which way possible. And, you know, with the eye test, with looking at numbers, it, it's all proven that to be true. This, this is the best basketball I've seen Ingram play from a mental standpoint from an engagement standpoint with his teammates and the fact that 
and Fish, you can tell me what you've seen with this. It, it, I don't think there's a question now. And you see the way Larry Nance, you know, addressed it after the game is like, B.I. is that dude. And he needs to know that we're rocking with him. And no matter what, made shot, missed shot, we're riding with B.I. And he didn't get that opportunity to feel that last year working with Zion because they're both figuring things out. And the first year, because they weren't having success, what he was doing felt more like, you know, volume rather than greatness. Where now when we're looking at Brandon Ingram, it just feels like he's a hooper. Like he's, he's a, he's the competitive part is there. The mental part is there. The skill is there. It's coming together. I don't know if, if he's peaked, but I'm saying I'm seeing the things that we were waiting for the last two years for Brandon have started to click. It's so much of it is so, so much of what I see in his improvement is he looks like Neo out there. Like time has slowed down for him on the court compared to everybody else. He is not in a hurry. He is extremely patient he is using his personal gravity to move defenders to open up passes and cuts for for his teammates um he's trusting his teammates you guys mentioned you know the hot stretch he had at the end of the fourth quarter two of the shots that he made were catch and shoot threes in the corner like how many have we seen him shoot all season um, he never shoots corner threes. Exactly. He he hit one from either corner. Like the first one, I, I'm pretty sure was from the left corner, mm-hmm. and and the, and the second one was from from the bottom right corner. I mean, everybody jumped at like the shot over Jay Crowder. At, you know, on the on the left wing was just absurd. Like that's just like he's a complete killer at that point. Um, but like getting the catch and shoots, um, the the turnaround on the baseline at the bottom of the screen on the, on the right side, mm-hmm. just he comes over CJ's trying to get it to him in his spot. The shot clock's running down. He catches it. There's no hesitation, but at the same time, he's not in a hurry. Like he's Brandon Ingram is operating on his own time. You're not speeding him up anymore. And that like watching it happen, um, watching what he's doing, you know, with his passing, we we can't say enough, honestly, about what he's done as a creator for others. Um, ha, ha, how far he's ta- how far he's taken it, especially like in the last couple of months, um, when he's really started to rack up these big assist games. And then Ali mentioned um the rebounding. It's not just the fact that he's getting rebounds. Brandon Ingram is crashing in you know, from, from the weak side or things like that and getting contested rebounds. Mm-hmm. Taking, he's taking rebounds from, you know, that McGee or Aiton could have got. Um, that all, all rebounds are not, you know, the same amount of value. There's a plenty of rebounds that you rack up and there were like two teammates of your own right side by side and there's no contest. Most of Brandon Ingram's rebounds to me they jump out that he is going up and he is taking the ball and securing a possession for the Pelicans that otherwise was likely to end up with Phoenix. 
Um, he's, I mean, Ali mentioned defensively. He's really using his length defensively. Um, he is, for the times that he has been on. Fish, he's keeping guys in front of him. Think he's, of how many times they yeah, were by the guys one in front of him. Two in yeah. past years. He's just, I mean, he's, he's really starting to leverage his length defensively. Mm-hmm. And I like, think I'm not going, yeah. I, I mean, clearly he's better defensively. This no. is just a hard series to gauge his peak because of the matchup. He's gotten yeah. a, it's a much, but he's, this is discipline. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. typically, we've seen him in the past where he would turn his head and allow people to cut off ball. And like yeah. you said, he's using his link to stay in front of people. That's been a huge difference. And I mean, I mean, when we talked about it on the first podcast, I mean, that's kind of filtering down throughout the roster, just in terms of the attention to detail and the focus. And that's something that the Pelicans were really only going to get if they matched up with Phoenix because Phoenix runs so much stuff. There's Mm -hmm. so much complexity to it that the Pelicans, like they really have to be locked in and, you know, they really need to understand the scouting report, what we're trying to take away. And I mean, win, lose um, each game. It feels like they're the, the whole team, the whole roster of, of guys who are getting these rotation minutes, they're leveling up. And it it just bodes well for the future of the team. And it it bodes well for the future of the team just in the next week or two, because it seems like to me watching, especially these rookies, um, her, Trey and Jose, I mean, they are picking stuff up quickly. They are applying, you know, errors that they've made quickly. Um, They are just a sponge for better basketball. And there's, I mean, for the next, you know, at least for the next three games, if not for the next four games, they're sitting there and they're just going to be devouring tape of them playing against probably one of the most fundamentally sound, best coached, most complex teams that you could see in the league since like the Kawhi Spurs, man. Like you're talking about really high level basketball and they are just devouring it every single day on the court, off the court, with tape and practice and walkthroughs, all of it. And it, it just, it, it's hard for me to stay in the moment when I think about that, because I'm thinking, you know, about the long-term syllabus and what this is all going to mean for those guys going into next year, what it's going to mean for the organization and how they're able to approach games on a week to week basis in the regular season, because now they understand what real attention to detail is. What right, real stay back in the present though. Stay back in the present. So I just, I, I love it. And, and like you had, you've always said like, this is the, this is the perfect matchup for mm-hmm. the Pelicans short-term and long-term. Um, from from a, from a teaching aspect, yeah. One this other thing, that one, one one thing I want to make sure we quickly mention is, it was shocking to hear that Willie Dean said basically Brandon Ingram was running the whole show out there, because there was a couple of moments in that fourth quarter where Bi he he didn't go one on one or completely try and dominate a possession and make a play or end up with a shot. Do you remember there was a couple of times within that fourth quarter he was reversing the ball. As soon as he got a touch, he threw. I remember once McCollum threw it to him to the left side. Mm-hmm. He threw it right back to him, and they ran the offense through that side. 
that's what sticks out in my mind when I heard those comments by Willie. And then, of course, when you look through uh, just some highlights, B.I., to go to Fish's point, recognizing, for instance, there was a fast break. I think B.I. ended up with the rebound, bringing the ball up the court. He had Jose Alvarado on the left side. I forget who was on the right side. But B.I. saw that whoever was on Jose wasn't paying any attention to him. So he's like, I'm going to drive left, um, down the left side, left elbow. And sure enough, he drew Cam Johnson. I forget who else was involved, but Jose was left wide open. He hits a big three when the Pels were only up by like three. Jose had all the time in the world, but the fact that B.I., you, you could see it. He read that play. He's like, as soon as I draw that guy, I'm going to hit Jose. Sure enough, he did. Boom. Up six. It was stuff like that. We didn't really see that consistently out of B.I., even when he was playing kind of well in the regular season, right? He ended up with those six, seven assist games. That felt more like a byproduct of, okay, I failed when I tried to go one-on-one or whatever, so let me now look to make a pass, right? It was much more rigid. Because there would be moments where we, we'd see him go for five minutes at a time or something, just exclusively looking to pass, right? And all of a sudden, there'd be three or four rebounds. I remember that being very uh, obvious in the start of the season when he was trying to win games on his own. He was trying to mm-hmm. play make. You know, he just couldn't find that comfortable medium. He's there now. Yeah, it's, it's, he's gotten to the point where, and look, this is, this is not a one-to-one comparison, but what I'm, uh, what I, I'm want you to, what people to realize is, I want you to envision it's it's a Scotty Pippen type thing, you know, where Scotty Pippen, the year that Scotty Pippen was top five in the MVP ballot mm-hmm. when Michael Jordan didn't play, Pippen only averaged 23 points a game. Like yeah, people like think he was some right? crazy yeah. scoring numbers. He only averaged 23 points a game, but it was the assist. It was running the offense mm-hmm. and getting the boards. And that's like, you, like what Brandon was doing. Yeah. He, he ran the offense. He, like you said, Ollie, he didn't turn it into ISO. He ran the offense. And that is not something that you're right. I don't think that we had seen that for the overwhelming majority of the time with Brandon. That was always our problem with him offensively is that, yeah, he couldn't find that balance. When he tried to be a playmaker, it was obvious. And when he tried to be mm-hmm. a scorer, it was mm-hmm. obvious. Now there's a deceptiveness to his game where he is, you can tell that he is anticipating more of what the defense is going to do. He is understanding where the, that mm-hmm. they're going to come from, and he's deciding, I can still get this shot off, or I know where this person will be. And he's making those decisions rather than, as you said, it's a failure on my part. I got to give up the ball. Yeah, and here's a legit question, David, or to either one of you guys. How much do you think McCollum has helped here? We know how much film. First of all, B.I., from what I've heard, has always watched film, always studies the game. But having McCollum, who can actually dissect things and really understand things, probably even in a much more nuanced sense than B.I., makes me wonder how much has maybe that helped B.I. right now, right, to get to where he is at. What do you guys think? I think, and I'm going to just say quickly so then finish. I think this is the first time that he's had a – and this is the importance of having a lead guard – who understands the ability on how to communicate to the offense. The problem that we had with Lonzo was Lonzo was too quiet. Right. Like he was not the leader. CJ he just wanted to make a play for guard. somebody. That was it. Right. Yeah. CJ's a legitimate lead guard. So he's seen, he's been, because he's attacked, because he shoots, because he passes, he's seen all those things too. And I think he can give those eyes to B.I. as a scorer, as a passer, and C.J. is doing his share of rebounding as well. So Drew, for all the great things Drew did, 
you couldn't learn to do what Drew does. You could only watch what Drew does. You can't learn. Drew is not going to sit down. Was not going. Drew can't communicate to you and be like, "This is what I do." No, but CJ, I think, has brought that to that locker room in a very similar way to what Rondo did for the 2018 team. In a different way, of course, their their attitudes. But it's still, I see these things, and I can share this information with you, and it makes sense. And it it unlocked Anthony Davis. It unlocked Miritich. It unlocked Drew. For when with Rondo, and I think that's what CJ has allowed for a lot of these guys to do because he can see these things and he can communicate them and he can reassure them that their eyes aren't lying to them at certain times. I, I agree with everything Grub said there. Um, the the thing, and, and we were talking about BI, and I was talking about you know he's he's moving players with his eyes. And mm-hmm. he's moving players. And the thing is, it, something I think that CJ is giving the Pelicans that they haven't had before. And CJ especially is giving BI, and BI's never had it before. Um, is I think there's a lot of when, when him and CJA and BI, when they're talking during the game, when they're going to huddles and stuff like that, um, he's, he's talking, I believe that what's going on is he's talking to BI a lot about when. When we do this, the defense is going to react like that, which is going to open up this stuff. And so how, what stuff do you want to open up? And how, how are we going to get the defense to open up these things, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're playing chess here, right? We're anticipating how they're going to react. The Pelicans, for the longest time, were a dumb team. Like, let's just, they, they yeah. were dumb. And the Pelicans are not dumb now. Like they are, they are. You know, the Phoenix. Even Suns. their worst players aren't dumb now. You know, there's, I think there's only yeah, one. That. Or make, make this analogy: that 2018 team wasn't very smart. I'll be no. honest with you, right? No, they, you were there with me at every game. Yeah, yeah. they weren't smart. No, yeah, weren't smart. this 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 Pelicans team is smart, and they're learning, and a lot of what CJ and Bi are doing when they're handling the ball is. They're moving pieces, not necessarily just like waving players, hey, cut here, cut there, because a lot of that doesn't have to happen because Herb and Trey and even sometimes Jackson to a degree, like they're seeing the cuts because CJ and BI are talking to them in the huddles and between plays and stuff like that. They're overplaying like this. And then, you know, we're going to do this on purpose because we know that the defense will react in this way and they're going to react to this for this first cut or this first screen. And that's going to open up this other stuff. The Pelicans are playing the basketball at that higher level where, you know, we're going to run dummy actions because we know it's going to stress the defense in a certain way that's going to open up the next action that we want to run. The Pelicans didn't do that in 2018. They just overwhelmed teams with Drew being an absolute ferocious dog defensively and Anthony Davis being everywhere, you know, on the back line. And Nikola Mirotic having an out-of-body experience for a week and a half shooting the ball behind the arc. Um, but it wasn't it's it's like they were I mean to use like professional wrestling or something they were like just a a face that's out there and they're just slamming dudes around and they're just like the they're like a Hulk Hogan or something like that they're not they're not a technician the Pelicans are coming out right now and they're a technician they're taking teams apart they're taking a really smart team and they're taking them apart 
And that is what's really exciting as a Pelicans fan because they're not they're not just overwhelming them. Like they're obviously there was a stretch there. Jackson Hayes was overwhelming them with athleticism, but there's a lot of it that's going on. That's high level basketball that the Pelicans are doing. And that doesn't happen without CJ and what CJ is teaching um, Brandon Ingram and what Brandon Ingram is just learning from CJ with CJ, not having to say anything, just watching how he's moving guys. And that's, Oh, that, sorry. That's what it's, no, 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 please cut me off because I'm, I'm just going to ramble at this point. <laughs> so I just want to, we're at the stage. Let's hit our questions before we go. Um, first question. Yeah, one thing I wanted to say real quick, Greg, can I jump in real quick? One thing I wanted to say was, uh, listen to all this IQ talk. Is that as good a reason as any for us to have belief that the Pelicans could possibly have one of the best upsets of a one over or an eight over a one in history? Because no, never. Also, of course, accounting for Devin Booker, but because this team can figure things out there, I mean, look, they've dominated two second halves. We've seen Willie Green's team be excellent in third quarters for the last, what, four months, something like that. So that, I'm glad Fish mentioned that because that triggers something in my head that I meant to talk about tonight and I almost forgot. But yeah, it's the fact that this IQ, that this team's learning out there, that they make the right adjustments. They eventually get there, whether it's with the rotations or something. I think that gives me as much hope as anything on them possibly, right, stealing this series. There's been four other ones in the history of the NBA. The first was was, uh, the Denver Nuggets beating the Seattle Supersonics. That was the best of five. So Mm -hmm. that was 1994. And then, of course, you had uh, in 1999, you had the New York Knicks um, as the eight beat the Atlanta Hawks as the one, but that was the – Strikes um, lockout season. Um, so that was a shorter season, that was a very odd season. And then you, of course, in the same year, you had um the San Antonio Spurs. No, that's not the same year, it was very close. San Antonio Spurs were the last one in 2011, and they lost to Memphis as an eight. Memphis was the eight, San Antonio was the one in 2011. That Memphis team, I think, made the Western Conference Finals that year. I, I don't remember say? if it was – I don't remember if that No, one. I, they, I guess they lost second round. I think they lost – yeah. And then yeah. the last one, of course, is the, the I believe, Warriors who beat the, the Dallas Mavericks. Um, none of those teams, would you say, did it with their IQ? No. None of those four. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, the Warriors, it was a style, right, over the Mavericks. Nobody knew about it. Memphis yeah. is grit and grind, you know. Yep, yep. Um, not that that was a dumb team. Like I'm not going to stand here and say to, say that Gasol and but you're not. They didn't outthink the Spurs, the one seeded Spurs. They beat them. You know what I'm saying? Like they beat them. Um, well, I mean, I mean, the one honestly that's most poignant to me because it was when I was man, I was like 15 years old or something when the when the Nuggets beat the Sonics and they had Dikembe Mutombo and Alfonso mm-hmm. Ellis. Um, Antonio McDice, and um, I think was Nick Van Exel. Robert Pack. No, Nick Van Exel wasn't. No, it was Robert Pack. Robert um, Pack. Tom Hammonds. The thing was about that Seattle Sonics team is that Seattle Sonics team was used to just overwhelming opponents with athleticism, just mm-hmm. overwhelming them between Gary Payton and you know Sean Kemp and Detlef Shrimp. Was Shrimp on that team? Yep. Um, 
yeah so um so they were just used to overwhelming it. and the thing was is that the nuggets just they weren't scared at all and dikembe mutombo i mean that was like prime dikembe mutombo he was incredible in that series um so and like if anybody thinks about the nuggets over the seattle supersonics i assume that they see in their head dikembe mutombo laying on his back with the ball above his head just screaming um but yeah what the pelicans are trying to do here isn't something that's that's been done before um but i do think like today i was putting out a whole bunch of highlights of the pelicans rookies dunking the hell out of the ball on top of people when people look back at this at this series um if that comes to pass um i think that they're gonna they're, they're gonna lean towards the pelicans you know out athleted you know the older but wiser phoenix suns because of all the length and stuff like that because what what happens is that when you look back on something you don't look you don't zoom in on just what that series was you think about the players and what they did afterwards and what they've done before i mean um, look at the coaches too and the winning coaches in those you're talking about in denver it was um was it dan Issel? george was the carl coach? right no, oh, no, no, Sonic. Sorry, Sonic. Yeah, he was, he was Dan Issel. I want to say Dan Issel was the coach for the for the for the yeah. for the um, Nuggets that year. Nuggets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at the Knicks. It was Van Gundy, um, and he took him to the finals. That was a weird Knicks team because uh, mm-hmm. that was Patrick Ewing got hurt. They beat the Heat in the first round. I mean, they beat the Hawks in the first round. Then beat. So it was, it was very weird, very very weird. Um, and then of course, yeah, you take the those those. Yeah, Don Nelson and a mix of dudes who just didn't give a fuck. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like Baron Davis, Steven Jackson, Barnes. That's just a bunch of dudes who just didn't give a fuck. So, yeah, they weren't impressed by the Mavericks. Like, okay, sure, great. And then the same thing is that Memphis team is a, was an older group of, of guys who had been together. It's, you know, it's some part of that. and and, and very a very physical team it's just and none of those were coached by a rookie you know first year head coach none of those were coached by teams that that only had one player who'd ever been in the playoffs before it's it's just this is a strange mix it's a weird thing and in sports is about matchups and timing and the pelicans have a good matchup and they have good timing and you hate to Mm -hmm. you hate to see devin booker go down um but you know i said they were going to have a puncher's chance because they compete and they still got a puncher's chance now. It's just they, yeah. You know, one thing we forgot: another upset. It was the year Derrick Rose tore his ACL. Remember the Philadelphia 76ers upset them. That wasn't an eight-one. That was a two-seven. It wasn't an eight-one. That was a two-seven. There have been four oh, two-sevens. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So, so I mean, before we get mm-hmm. into the questions, I mean, the thing was, and this was this was my point for for a long time for the past like couple months. The Pelicans. Like you can look at their overall record, but the Pelicans since Feb- February first were good. Period. Yes. No qualifications needed. Eighteen yes. and twelve over thirty games. Seventh in offensive rating. Sixth in defensive rating. Fourth in net rating. Like that's not a pushover. Everybody was mm-hmm. looking at the Pelicans are the eight seed, and you know they got in just because of the play-in record. I read Mark Stein was saying the Pelicans shouldn't even be here because <laughs> they finished too far behind the Clippers. Well, you know that is we we both said fish that we're not fans of the the play because of that, you know. So, but but, but the Pelicans have earned their way in. 
Yeah. But the thing is, is that this team right now over, you know, the last 30 games, two play-in games, you know, first two playoff games, they're good, period. No qualification needed. They're peaking at the right time, you know? Yeah. And And this is timing and matchups. Yeah. So, no, it's. And they have the depth. That's another thing we got to look at, right, Phoenix? Who do you turn to besides Cam Johnson, who now has to probably be a starter? Because campaign hasn't been playing well. I can't really name. I mean, Landry Shamet didn't get his first minutes till yesterday after the injury. So I don't know what Phoenix has got even because of health. They got they're eight deep for sure. I think Phoenix is. I think the interesting thing for me to we'll see is Phoenix in the first quarter is because the first quarter typically is when they go to Booker to get him going. He's the second. He was the second leading scorer in the NBA in the first quarter. So they tried to get him his shots early. And he got shots early against the Pelicans in game two. Like they were looking for him, um, even in those actions, like the first look was going to be his. So that to me means that who do, who do they try to create opportunities for? The most likely candidate is Aiton for them to run some mm-hmm. screen and roll early. But I think that, that they also understand that, that people are going to think that they're going to go heavy Aiton, which means – you're going to Chris Paul is going to probably look for situations where he can, you know, get bridges cutting again, because we, we know bridges is a great off the ball cutter. Um, and I think that'll be something they look for. And I think they're going to try to create those corner three situations for Crowder again, because he's not been shooting it well from above the, the key, but he he's a much better corner three shooter. And the Pelicans, the one weakness they've had, it doesn't matter who they've been with, is that they give up the corner three. So, um, but I, I, it's going to be difficult. Like that first quarter is really going to be interesting to see because it's not about mm-hmm. the starters. I just want to see what offensive sets that Phoenix does and who they try to create a matchup for to get something easy early. That that to me, the first five minutes are going to be really really interesting to watch. All right, let's get to the question. Uh, Fish, I'll give you this one: What adjustments can the Pels make defensively? to secure two home victories for a, uh, against a Booker list Suns team. Oh, Herb, Herb Jones is going to roll out and he's going to look over at Chris Paul. And I just, he won't say it cause he's too respectful, but I just want to be like, I, I wish he would say old man, the future is now. And he's going to wear <laughs> Chris Paul like a shirt, man. And, and once you do that, the thing is, is that you're going to, you're going to put a lot of creation, you know, request, demands on Mikhail Bridges and Cam Cam Johnson and Jay Crowder and Aiton and all of those guys are used to eating off of the stuff that Chris Paul and Booker create for them and if the Pelicans go and the Pelicans have run this some um, where they essentially tell Herb we're not switching with you The Pelicans have rolled that out some. They've rolled it out in doses. When they, you know, when it gets crunch time against the San Antonio Spurs, they put Herb on DeJounte Murray and they say, you're sticking to him. Get over or under the screen and make it happen. They did that to LeBron. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, They did that to LeBron at the end of games. I think that that might be something that they roll out from the start and they're going to 
literally they're going to try to wear Chris Paul down because they're going to make everything a challenge. And when it's not Herb Jones, it'll be Najee Marshall. When it's not Najee Marshall, Jose Alvarado is going to be swirling around him like a freaking gnat. And it's just, they're going to make everything hard on Chris Paul and they're going to try to decapitate the snake. That is, that I think is, has to be the plan um, going forward. And to a large degree, I want, I want the Pelicans, um, game plan to be we're going to take out chris paul and the rest of you are going to have to make challenge shots over hands to beat us um and that's what i expect the pelicans are going to do as well many have tried many have tried and as i just i'm i'm not underestimating chris paul man i'm not doing it i don't care how that dude's 36 i'm not underestimating that dude with the basketball in his hands because He's Chris Paul, and that's I've just seen him too many times. Do it. now if he gets hurt, all bets off. You know what I'm saying? Like all bets off. It if Chris Paul gets hurt, but yeah, it, I, obviously, yeah, you want to take him. He's the best ball handler they have on the floor. I think you may see a lot more campaign and Chris Paul sets. Now, you might see a lot more of those, so that Chris doesn't have to take the ball up court and exert himself that way. Um, but yeah, it's Chris Paul, Ollie. I'm worried about Cameron Johnson. He's the one, right? Because if, if I'm Chris Paul, you know you've got Aiton. You can look for it any time. Who's the next guy? I mean, Crowder, he's not known as a three-point shooter. Bridges, he's the best um, with cuts, right? He's, he's not established himself as any kind of, I'm going to get on a hot streak, burn you for three or four straight threes. Besides Booker, it's just Cam Johnson, right? Campaign hasn't really been good all season. He hasn't nearly been as consistent as last year. So that's the guy I'm most worried about. So I, I agree with 100% what Fish said. And, of course, the game plan just seems obvious. You're going to, of course, just put all your attention on Chris Paul. But I want to make sure that you don't just get out to every shooter, but highlight the ones you really need to get out to. So for me, you, you've got to make sure Cam Johnson isn't destroying you. Because what did he have? I won't forget it. He had, like, against – I think it was against Grubbs Knicks. He went for, like, 35, 37, 40 points, something like that, before he ended up getting hurt and missing a bunch of games. And he had and a bunch of other highlight too. games like that. And he's at, Cam Johnson is active. Oh, like, yeah. He doesn't just yeah. stand out on the wing. He, he, he I envision Trey Murphy really falling in his footsteps, right, as soon as next year. But, yeah, I completely agree, David. Um, you know, most of the other ones, a lot of people keep asking about Zion. And, Ali, you know, our feeling has always been on this. is like, until they say he's playing, I'm not going to even think about him playing. Um. And I just don't, I just, it, it's clear to me that the Pelicans have no desire to have, to, to push him in this series, because I think still the goal for them and, and Willie Green has said it essentially is that they're thinking about him being fully healthy for next year. And mm-hmm. that's, that's that whatever they gain this year is going to be with this group. They're going to ride with this group all the way out and whatever happens, happens. If Zion was healthy, he'd be playing. I hope people understand that simple fact, right? I've been following him along in, in this new story. He wasn't anywhere close to being ready to play when he returned from Portland. I know he's put out some videos, and, of course, ESPN caught the one before the Spurs playing game and such. It wasn't and that oh, great of a dunk. dunk. He, well, but here's my thing. It's one freaking dunk. Watch him no, for a few minutes out there. First of all, you know, he's not in game shape. He was sweating and breathing heavily. 
this was just after what was it running around for five six minutes of shooting in pregame in a warm up like type of routine. He's not ready for game shape, man. And look, he, he, there's no timetable. He's he's not doing legitimate five on five. There's so many signs out there, but people are ignoring him because one Zion, you know, has had put out these dunks too. He says he wants to play, but that, that, that's so irrelevant. So, anyways, I don't want to talk about him more, but he's out basically indefinitely. And I don't foresee him playing definitely in this series and maybe even next if the Pelicans somehow get to it. He's, yeah, he just doesn't look in shape to me either. And I'm not saying this that he looks overweight, but he's not in basketball shape. And even when we exactly. saw the, five, the yeah. limited five-on-five five that he's doing against the, the assistant coaches and trainers and stuff, he did not look to be in basketball condition yet. There wasn't bounce and spring to the to his movements. He was moving, but it did, he didn't look like somebody who had that that oh, I'm ready to play. You know what I mean? It it didn't look like that. It didn't it just didn't look like that to me. And you're there. Nope. Um, and it, it still just, doesn't. It, no, and it still doesn't. <laughs> so, uh, you know, to me Zion is a non-factor in this. And let's stop Again, this is the part. Uh, Fish talked about this about when all these new Pelicans and and um, and, and uh, Ali and I talked about this a little bit before we started. Is like there's so much more noise in Pelicans land now, so much more contributing, and that's great. Again, we are not gatekeepers. We are not people who endorse gatekeeping of fandom. If you want to root for the Pels, awesome. But my thing again is, and, and Fish, you know too. Stay in the moment, man. Comparison is the thief of joy. What you could have, what if, what might. What's better than what you have right now? You're 1-1 in the first round of a playoff series, regardless of seed, coming home with home court advantage in a team that you feel confident in. Take anything else outside of that narrative. What's there to be upset about? What's there to ask questions about? What's there to hypothesize about? You're, you should be in basketball heaven if you're a Pelicans fan. And if you're in heaven, you don't question, you just enjoy. I mean, I have, Ali and I have talked about this offline. Um, and this is less about, oh, Zion has to get back because it gives the Pelicans a better chance for this series or if there's another series or anything like that. The, the argument I would make for Zion coming back to play in the playoffs would be if he and his camp and the Pelicans agree that he's going to come off the bench because he's going to be playing in bursts and the best way to manage those bursts is he comes off the bench and you point to Golden State and you say there's a two-time MVP that is still coming off the bench because he's coming back from injury so you're not too good to be a guy who comes off the bench and, and Zion Williamson signs off on that and agrees and says, you know, in some post game press conference, you know, we're doing this because it's the best thing for me and my long-term health. The reasoning for all of that would be the fact that it's the best way that Zion's camp and the Pelicans put down all the BS that's floating around out there about there being a rift between the organization. This is their best opening between now and July 1st, if he's signing a a contract extension for, um, you know, the organization and Zion Williamson's camp 
to silence that stuff. It has a lot. It has very little to do with on the court. It has to do with if those two camps can come together and they can come to an agreement, they can appear to be a united front and silence those critics. Um, if not, if that doesn't happen for whatever reason, for the Pelicans front office and Quentin Richardson had an appearance today on the Pat McAfee show where he laid it out as a player and as somebody who's in the front office now. He understood that the front office has to protect the player because he remembers when he was 22 years old and he felt like, I'm ready, I can play. And now he's in a front office role where he's like, no, guys need to be ramped up so that we don't have reoccurrence for injuries and things like that. We need to protect players from themselves. Um, and he he outlined that very well in, a, in, you know, in just a four-minute little speech. And then Pat McAfee, you know, the national media stand-in, there's just like, well, I just want to see him play. He's really exciting. Well, yeah, he is. We all want to see him play. Like we all want to see him play. That's not the question. (laughs) Yeah, like the Pelicans want to see him play, and that's why they're not playing him. Like, let's let's be very clear about that. The Pelicans want to see him play and be healthy and to play, you know, 65, 70 games next year. And that is why he hasn't played yet. But, uh, you know, going back to the little argument I was making there, the argument for playing him is about silencing the background noise about a rift between the organization um, and Zion's camp, because if they come out as a united front and he's coming off the bench and he's playing bursts and we're doing all of this in a, in, you know, a methodical manner to try to ramp him up. um, That would be the best way for the Pelicans and Zion's camp to kind of hush those criticisms in that, narrative that's that's swirling around it just feels so difficult for me if i'm willie green mm-hmm. oh, and i, I don't want to add like to me i don't want to add a variable i don't want to throw another knife you know while he's juggling a chair and a bowling ball you know and a you know uh, you know all these things and you gotta throw a knife in there and be like keep juggling yeah i, I just think <laughs> it, it's so it's 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 so hard so to me if you are going to bring him in, I'm not bringing him in the middle of a series. You know what I'm saying? Like if if he is going to play, he's not playing. I'm not bringing him in the middle of a series. Yeah. Because I need time sense. to set this up. I need to figure it out. And, and at the same time, I need to be able to communicate this with Zion and understand with him. Willie has to have that conversation too. It's like, mm-hmm. dude, this is what we're going to do. And are you, and, and, and I think the ultimate question too is, do you want to play because you want to play? Or do you want to play because you want to be part of this? And that's the question in the playoffs. Because if you ain't part of this, what we're doing here, it ain't going to work. And you getting, he might score 20 points. He might, but they won't win. And and that, and then people will be looking at other things and everything turns back into the problem again. Why'd you bring him back? Why didn't you bring him back? Why is the roster not this? Why did Willie do this? That is so it's like to me, there's only bad consequences. Like, the, yeah, the for me, chance... the biggest one is obviously an injury, yes, of some sort or setback. And look, w- one name for you guys, and everybody in New Orleans is old enough to remember Quincy Pondexter. He played in the playoffs when he shouldn't have, and look what happened. He ended up having to need microfracture surgery, but my god, did it go off the rails where he had an infection that almost killed him. Right, yeah. and of course, I'm not saying that would happen to Zion. But the Pelicans I'm, I'm waited on looking... Quincy for two years to try yeah, to heal. Yeah, but I'm he just looking at it. the fact that he played when he shouldn't have been playing. 
He hit a little bit of his his knee issues, right? He had a soreness and he was all that, but he wasn't really being upfront with the Pell's mm-hmm. medical staff at the time. And, and look what it led to. I can see exactly why New Orleans medical team, based on Zion's previous injury history, are being extra careful. And he hasn't jumped through all the hurdles yet. So that's no, the end of the discussion for me. And the finances of it too. Like you have to think about this because if you are going to offer this man an extension – I'm not going exactly. to sign an extension to damage goods. I need to you're make risking sure you're your healthy. investment. Absolutely. So it's all of those things are in play here. And I, honestly, even if the Pelicans, I think people believe certainly if they get the right matchups and they win, if they somehow win this series, they've got a, again, a puncher shot in the second round. Cool. Mm-hmm. Ride that out because you're not going to win a championship. It's not going to happen. This is not a championship team. It's just not. Ride out whatever you got and ride it out. And, and like I said, the, the, there's the, the chances of something good happening with Zion. What's the best case scenario? That he plays a couple games and you get what? Because you think right now without him, you have a chance to win this first round series, right? Right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yep. So does he make you a lock to win the second round series? No, he doesn't. Does he get you into the NBA finals? No, I don't think he does. So the, 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 even the upside of bringing him back is just fan service for the most part. What did the Pelicans go when they traded for CJ McComb? Were they one and five to start in that new era? Mm-hmm. Two and four. They went two they and four. They had a terrible homestand. Went two and four during that homestand. Yeah, before so, the All-Star break, I felt like they just won once, right? Something like that. It was bad. Anyways, my point is that, that that's a major piece you add, and all of a sudden now you're going to add Zion to two major pieces? I don't know. And CJ was yeah. in game shape. And yeah. CJ is a nine-year veteran. And CJ, you know what I mean? Like all those things. CJ had played NBA basketball, right? Zion hasn't played in a year. Think of how rusty he is mentally and physically. Yeah. I mean, come on. He has no idea about Willie's offensive or defensive scheme. He doesn't understand any of them. And you can say, well, he's been at practice every day. It ain't the same. He's not played at NBA speed defensively with five other people. It's, it's, it's a huge disadvantage for it's. It's just it, if it had come in the regular season, I've never heard of. I, I don't think I'm uh, in modern NBA history. I can't think of a player who missed an entire regular season and came back in the playoffs. Well, Ben Simmons is about to, but that's an exception. I agree. Yeah, but you, they're not putting the burden on Ben Simmons that people would put on Zion Williamson. Yes, true. If Ben Simmons stinks it up in Brooklyn, a lot of people are going to be like, "Well, that's what we thought Ben Simmons was anyway." The expectation if Zion steps on the floor is that he's going to transform the Pelicans into something else. And a championship I, contender. Let's be honest. The majority would think they'd be a championship contender if he stepped on the court in tomorrow's game. And I don't believe that to be so. I don't believe that to don't be so. It. He's not in a position to help this team. Well, it'll just take time. But, yeah, it's not. Yeah, he, he's not in position. Magically appearing on the court. Yeah. yeah. Throwing him out there, is. It, I think it just creates – at this stage. And I know fans are going to be like, y'all are stupid. Is Zion, if he were a hundred percent healthy, then we would, this wouldn't even be a question because he'd already be playing. Exactly. (laughs) So it's that simple. Um, Guys, I'm excited for game three. I think it will be. um, Electric. Yes. I think the first, the first, again, I think the first five minutes will be incredibly telling. 
Um, but we'll see adjustments throughout. I think this is another game where there'll be a lot of lead changes. But typically also, the Pelicans in game three blow people out. That's what they do in game threes at the, at the Smoothie Kicks. They tend to win these by double digits. So, I mean, if, if it plays the form, Pelicans will win and they'll win by double digits. Do you guys – do you think – let's get your thought. Ollie, do you think that they win this game and do you think that they can win it by double digits? I do think they'll win the game. As for guessing the score, I have no idea. Look, if we see the team that shows up that played in that second half yesterday, then yes. But if we see the team that had a lot more mistakes, um, saying from the first two games, then no. So they're still very inconsistent, still trying to figure this out as they go along. So to predict if you know one way or the other, I think you're lying to yourselves. I'll say get win game three. Fish? Um, I think they're going to win it, and they'll win it going away. Um, they'll have a massive third quarter. It'll probably be pretty tight for the first half, but my expectation is they'll have a massive third quarter. They'll ride the crowd, um, and pretty early on in the fourth quarter, Monty Williams is going to look down at his, you know, on the floor and at his bench, and he's going to say, if we're going to win this series and we're going to do the other things that we want to do, I don't need to put these next six or seven minutes on Chris Ball's legs, and he's going to have a seat. And then at that point, you know, the Pel- the Pelicans will run away with it. Well, we we have less than twenty four hours until we get to find out. So, I'm excited. You're excited. On behalf of David Fisher and Ali Cosell, I am David Grubb. This has been the Bird Calls, and in the words of our friend Preston Ellis, let's go. Pal. for listening to the bird calls on the armchair all-american network if you like what you're hearing please take a moment to rate us on itunes retweet share with your friends and most importantly subscribe today today's episode of the bird calls is brought to you by sports drink your digital water cooler sports drink is a newly created internet community that tries to find the intersection of sports and not sports they're here to help us grow and to hate your favorite team A rising tide lifts all boats, so go check them out online or social. Go to sportsdrink.org or open Instagram and type in sportsdrink, spelled like sportsdrink but without the vowels. All we ask is that you close the door behind you. We're trying not to let the funk out.